Well, let's draw near to our God and pray for his blessing on considering the Word of God. Father, you have given us the Scriptures. Spirit of God, you have been willing to apply the salvation to us that you, Lord Jesus, won in our behalf. Spirit, as you have breathed out these pages, we pray that you would come, be present in our midst, and help us to understand these pages. Be with the heart and the mind and the tongue of this preacher, and be with the ear and the mind and the heart of every hearer. We need this if we are to profit from your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I travel to Manila in the Philippines to teach, my room is on the front side of the house and therefore relatively close to the street. It's an air-conditioned room. It's closed in. The air conditioner is right up there in this room. But even with that noise of the air conditioner, I can hear something in this quiet residential neighborhood early in the morning. It goes something like this. Manga, manga, manga. And on other days, it is bananas, bananas, two pesos for a banana. It doesn't matter to that street vendor that I am not particularly in the market for mangoes or bananas. All that's taken care for me. He doesn't know that I've already been competing with the rooster earlier in the morning. I want the quiet so that I can focus on my notes that I will be teaching for a few hours later in the day. But the vendor wants to sell his goods. He doesn't care who he interrupts, he wants to make sure that he is heard, that he is there, and he's got mangoes, and he wants to make a deal with anyone who wants a mango or a banana. In Isaiah 55, God is like the street vendor. And I want you to imagine in your mind something of a form of a man there in the busiest part of the city lifting his voice so that he will be distinctly heard over all the rest of the noise selling whatever he is selling. You see, for the God of grace, it is not enough for him to conceive a plan of salvation. 
Not enough for him to send the Lord Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a perfect sacrificial death. Our God of grace goes on and wants to interrupt your life and my life with the message of the gospel because God has got a gospel deal for us. Now you may know that the second half of the book of Isaiah is called oftentimes the gospel according to Isaiah. And there are good reasons for that. In Isaiah 49, we have a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be Jehovah's servant. And he is going to come and save those from among the Jews. But even more than that, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And when we turn to Isaiah 53, we find that most detailed prophecy of the substitutionary and sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus in all of the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 54 lays out how God is going to marry the barren woman. And this woman, as the symbol of his people, loosely the church, is going to need to expand the tent because God is going to cause his descendants to inherit the nations. And as we come to Isaiah 55, and as we hear of Messiah, and as we hear of Jehovah, Yahweh, making his invitation, we need to keep in mind that what has just happened has been the announced expansion of the church, 54, and more foundationally in 53 is the perfect life and sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are in Isaiah 55, the Lord, in all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, inviting sinners. I invite you to look with me at Yahweh, the evangelist. Roman number one. Yahweh's gospel invitation, this is verses one through three. Yahweh is the speaker. Here is the salesman. And notice, first of all, A, the gospel's universal scope. What does the salesman say? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. And if you are wanting to follow through this morning's message in the text, you don't have your Bible with you, page 849 in the Pew Bible. The universal scope is A, it is, first of all, an exclamation of pity. The hoe is something of getting attention, but more of, alas, there's a sad situation that the salesman is looking at. Then notice the breadth of the appeal. Everyone, everyone who thirsts, 
and their sad condition. Those that he is speaking to are those who are thirsty, those who have no money. And the first thing that comes to your mind is this. What salesman is going to spend his time and his energy and his effort on those who don't have any money? But before you start thinking that Jehovah is not a very good salesman, I want to assure you that this is precisely the point. God is acting like a salesman, but he says, I know you don't have any money. I know that you don't have that which is going to qualify you for the great gift that I am going to give you. He is crying out to everyone who thirsts and has no money. That's A, the universal scope. Now B, the gospel's gracious terms. And they are kind terms, but I mean more than that with this gracious terms. They are terms of absolute grace. They are terms not of merit, but of God condescending and giving. Here's the language of come to the waters, come by and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Notice the riches of the gospel terms. The waters speak of refreshment. Wine speaks of exhilaration, the happiness associated with it. The milk of nourishment. All that we need in our spiritually bankrupt condition is found in the waters, the wine, the milk, and a little bit later, the bread. But Isaiah is not speaking of water merely on a physical level and milk on a physical level and of wine on a physical level. For notice there in verse 2, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. ESV has yourselves. But it puts soul in there in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. So when God the evangelist is offering water and he's offering wine and he's offering milk, it is the kind of water and wine and milk that does me good at the core of my being. It's going to do good for my never dying soul. And if you want to translate that, that's fine. It's a good translation. Your whole person. But in verse 3, we see that we're rising to something of a spiritual level. There's your soul shall live. Your soul's going to live because it got some wine? Because it got some milk? Because it got some water? Further in verse 3, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So God wants us to think. God wants us to think in terms of, well, what kind of water is it that is going to help my soul to live? What kind of wine is it? And as we think of this, we think of our Lord Jesus 
there in John 4, speaking to the woman at the well and offering to her living water. You take this water, you'll never need to drink again. So there is something of the richness of the gospel terms. But they are gracious terms, so we need to see further the freeness of the gospel terms. And here's the language. Buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Sinners are here being urged to make a deal with God. God is out in the street and he is crying aloud. He is interrupting whatever you are doing and saying, I want to make a gospel deal with you and you don't need money. There is no price for you on what I am giving you. God wants you to start thinking in terms of what kind of gospel deal is it that I can have interaction with God, the salesman, but I don't need money because there is no price for me on that which he is selling. It is to those who are thirsty. It is to those who have a great need. Remember the connection back to 54 and back to 53. And that key verse there of verse 6. All we like sheep, who is he trying to make a deal with? Those sheep who have all gone astray. And what's part of the deal? That God has taken the sins of all those that have gone astray and laid it on him. Has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what God does to fix our problems. But as we're looking here at the richness of the gospel terms, the freeness of the gospel terms, I want you to see the involvement of man in the gospel terms. And this is particularly relevant for those of us who have been working together through the book of Romans, and we've been hearing the sovereignty of God in Romans 9, and we might tend to think, well, God does it, and there's no response. There's nothing at all for man to do at all. Well, look here at what God wants man to do, even though he doesn't have money, He doesn't have anything to pay, even though he's a sinner, though he is guilty. What does God expect him to do? What does he demand of him to do? Verse 1, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk. Then again in verse 3, incline your ear, come to me. And so there it is. So many times God is laying out, there is an activity for you to, you don't have money, but you got to show up. And to change the figure, if God the vendor is trying to make a deal, it's as though the deal is going to be closed over here. I have rented a public hall And I've got all these tables set up and I've got all of this food that is spread out 
And I've got all of this water and wine and milk and bread in there. You're out here. You can't afford the price to get. Oh, but there is no price. But you have to come. You have to come. You have to come to God. Further in verse 2, what does the sinner need to do? He needs to listen carefully. He needs to eat He needs to let his soul delight in the abundance that God provides. Verse 3, incline your ear. Now that's an interesting term, isn't it? But sometimes when you hear something, you you turn just a little bit trying to, where did it come from? But this, this incline your ear is a word that we might expect of stretch out your hand. Stretch your ear. There's all this noise. There are all these people. But there is a salesman who is crying out to you, wanting to make a deal. Fix on God's voice. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear, which means listen. And the point of this, of noticing the come, the come, the incline your ear, the eat, You will not get to heaven if you simply wait for God to zap you. You must act. Don't expect that everything is going to be done for you, that God is so sovereign in conversion, it's going to happen to you before you even know it. No. Most likely God is going to make you miserable by seeing your own sin and you're going to feel that and you're going to be concerned about it. And then you'll want to do something to get right with God. Here's Jehovah. Come, come, buy, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk. It has a certain echo, doesn't it? When the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Jehovah and Jehovah's servant. There is that which the sinner must do. Well, I ask you this morning, are you asking gospel questions? Is God real? Why do I feel guilt? Is Jesus Christ truly the Son of God? Is God going to hold me accountable for my sins? How can I be right with the perfectly holy God of heaven when I am so sinful? Are you asking these questions? Well, I hope that you are. And I hope that you see that here is Jehovah, the street vendor. Who does he want? He's crying out to everyone who thirsts. The gracious terms are there. You come into his banquet hall without money and without price, but there's stuff that you got to do. You got to get there. You got to partake. And now thirdly, this is C, the gospel's four-part entreaty. I bless God for his kindness I bless him that he is not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of God. But he interrupts your life and my life by breaking in as a salesman lifting his voice 
And now we have him asking questions and reasoning with us. There is this entreaty on the part of God to us. First of all, number one, the futility of misspent money and energy where God says, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? You can live your life. You can have a great job. You can accumulate all of these things. You can have the kind of house that makes people go, wow. You can have a Mustang GT and people go, wow. You can have that sleekest, shiniest, biggest Mercedes available and people will go, wow, but after you get it, there's still going to be an emptiness in your heart because you're not rightly related to the God of heaven. Are the wealthy satisfied in this world? You know the answer. And here God says, I care enough about you that I'm going to interrupt your life. I'm going to force the gospel into your mind and then I'm going to entreat with, what are you doing with your life? Don't you want a life that counts at the end of the day? Don't you want a life that you're going to be somewhat happy with in the day of judgment? The futility of misspent money. The second part of God's entreaty is the nobility of a soul delighting itself in abundance let your soul delight itself in abundance. Part of the reason why we as Christians believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is because of the great benefit in eternity. I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be right with God. But part of the reason why I, why many of us have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is because we want a sense of our soul being happy in the here and now. What do I mean by that? Well, I know what it is to sin. I know what it is to have a sense of guilt. I have a sense of what it feels like when my conscience is telling me that I have been an utter jerk. And for me, to have a sense of delight that my sins are forgiven, I can see that though I am imperfect, that God is transforming, God is working on me, it brings tremendous encouragement to my heart. I believe it's what Jesus speaks of when he says in John 10, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. I'm glad I'm a Christian for eternity, but I'm, a, I'm glad that I am a Christian now. I'm glad that I can live by biblical principles of a husband and wife. And as old as I am to be able to look back, well, I've got the privilege of a marriage that's gone on for decades and we love one another. A soul that delights itself in abundance. 
You see, we are body-soul creatures. And there's more than just the house for the body, the car for the body, the lavish spread for the body. There's my soul. And it means something to be right with the God of heaven. It means something to know that all of my sins have been forgiven. Thirdly, in the entreaty, the importance here of hearing Yahweh, verse 3, incline your ear. You see, but God puts things for us to do, but he, he's entreating us. Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. You may not know anything about God, but if you know that there's something relatively small that you can do that will lead to a situation where the God of heaven is making an eternal super promise to you, that ought to be appealing to you. He is entreating us. He is reasoning with us. Why not listen to the all-knowing God who made you and listen for what he wants you to do with your life? Fourthly, in the four parts of the entreaty, the promise of eternal salvation. Whoops, the preacher jumped ahead. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I'm the one who is thirsty. I'm the one who has no money. And yet God promises to make a kind of deal with me that is going to last for all eternity. Do you know what a covenant is? A covenant is God solemnly promising to keep his word. It's like a super promise on the part of God that he's going to keep all of his other promises. We shouldn't need a super promise from God that he's going to keep his promises because he's the God who cannot lie. But he's doing it for you. He's doing it so you will have the confidence that God will certainly follow through on his word. This eternal covenant, it's something that was promised to David's descendant. And that's why David is mentioned in this verse. It's the covenant made in 2 Samuel 7, 17, where God says, when your days are fulfilled and you, David, rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Is it Solomon? Well, no. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise is true of only one. Jesus Christ who will rule forever. And it comes about because back in Isaiah 53, we read that the Lord, Jehovah, was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief, if he would render 
himself as an offering for sin, a guilt offering for sin. That's what God's going to do. But then God is going to further bring him back to alive because it says he will see his seed. He will see his offspring. It's a death that is going to cause the births of others. Now remember how much it is going to cost you to make a covenant with God. More accurately, think on how much it is going to cost you to get God to make a covenant with you. Nothing. You're the one that is thirsty, that has no water, that has no food, and you have no money, but you don't need it because God is making the gospel deal. You come to me in your sin, you come into my banquet hall, and I will provide everything for you. Roman numeral two. There was something of Yahweh's gospel invitation. Now in verse 4 and 5, Messiah's gospel success. Messiah's gospel success. We see here, first of all, A, the source of Messiah. Indeed, I, Yahweh is talking, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Here it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is the giver of Messiah. He is the one who formed his servant. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. The second thing we want to see is not only the source of Messiah, but the threefold description of Messiah. What is he like? Well, he's a witness. And he's a leader or a prince And he's a commander. He is a witness. He is one who comes and tells us the truth. And Jesus is the one who came as a man and he exegeted the Father. He declared what the Father is like. In fact, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, he said, For this cause I was born... And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. He's a witness. He's secondly a leader and prince. Peter says, and you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And he is a commander. Historical King David was a wonderful military man. I don't believe he ever lost a battle. But the Lord Jesus Christ, his great descendant, has a much greater honor. King David commanded armies here on the earth. The great son of David commands his church as it goes forth into the nations and he plunders the devil's kingdom to bring men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. So there's the source. There's as well uh, something uh, of the description of the Messiah. And now come with me to see 
uh, number C, the far-reaching success. The far-reaching success. First, in his calling of an unknown nation. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. Speaking of the activity of the Messiah and the age of the Messiah after his death on the cross. And nations who do not know you shall run to you. Where in the Old Testament, God was dealing narrowly with the genetic line of Abraham. Yes, there's a Bathsheba that's thrown in there. Yeah, there's a Rahab that's thrown in there. Yes, from the very beginning, Abraham had a promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed in his descendants. But now we're at that point. Surely you should call a nation you do not know, not the Israelites, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. If you're looking at the ESV, it's nation in the plural. I suggest it ought to be, they have nation in the singular. It ought to be plural. The verb is plural of those who will run. They will run to you. But we've already have it. Your Isaiah 54, that there will be, your descendants will inherit the nations. We have it in Isaiah 52 in verse 13, 14, where Jesus will sprinkle the nations regarding their sin. So here's the calling of an unknown nation and the response of nations that come to the Lord Jesus. They will run to you. And if we look at this in its strongest sense, or maybe the the best picture of this, would be those special seasons in revival where God is drawing, yes, individual sinners, but many individual sinners on the same day. We're in our own community about 25 minutes that way out in the country and an historic Presbyterian church where George Whitfield preached to 10,000 people at about 1739, 1740. And you go out to this rural area today and say, where did all these people come from? God was causing the nations to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Roman number one, Yahweh's gospel invitation. Roman number two, Messiah's gospel success. And now thirdly, Yahweh's gospel pleading. His gospel pleading. We've already seen him standing in the street and crying out for individuals to stop and to listen, to come, to buy, without money, without price. We've got him where there is an entreaty that is going on. But now, I think it reaches the level of pleading. Reasoning further. See it in verse 6. This is A. A pleading that manifests God's sovereignty. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He has already been pleading, but now there is a pleading saying, I want you to address this issue of your sin and our distance now. I don't want you to wait 
God truly wants individuals to come in off of the street into the banquet hall of the gospel. He tells us in Ezekiel, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And here, Jehovah is pleading as well. Seek the Lord. Seek him. It's it's got the hint of taking steps. And perhaps that is, whenever you've lost something and you're seeking it, you don't just sit where you are and say, Hi, Mom, I don't see it. Well, we might tell that child, get up and use your feet and walk, and then be seeking as you walk. And it's again that responsibility that God lays on the sinner. Salvation is yours without money, without price, but you've got to come. You've got to seek the Lord. There's a story that is told of a mother with her son and daughter clinging to a, up in a tree alongside of a flooded river that's raging. And the water is continuing to come up. Some rescuers come with a little boat and a long rope And from their little eminence, they let the boat downstream towards the tree. They get really, really close to the tree, but they run out of rope. The boy sees the situation, jumps, and ends up in the boat. The daughter tries to jump. She falls just short of the boat, but the guy in the boat grabs her and pulls her in. But the mother was gripped with fear. And about that time, the tree broke, and she is swept away to her death. I think that's something of the picture here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And Jehovah is not a regional God that he only lives in this area, or a hard-to-find God, or he only comes by in a circuit every once in a while. But it's speaking of the sovereignty of God when God is calling a sinner and he begins to work conviction in the heart. That's the time when you need to respond because you have no assurance that God is going to deal in that same way with you. If you take the figure of the, of the individual that here I am in my heart as an unbeliever, And God is outside and God is inviting me to open the door for him to come. And if every time there's an invitation, all that is heard is me grabbing an ale, bam, 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 bam. Every time I put more nails in the door, I think that's a picture of Pharaoh hardening his heart against God. And it doesn't mean that God does not have the omnipotence to knock the door down. But it is assuring 
that the longer you harden, the more you harden your heart against God. You can't entertain the thought, oh, when I'm old and worthless, then I'll repent and then I'll believe and I'll give the junk left over in my life to God. You can't be confident that you'll be able to do that. Edwards talks about this. He's one who lived back in the 1730s and saw the Great Awakening, saw the Great Revival. And he says that in our church, in our area, there was a revival in 1734, 1735, and then another one in 1741. Those who resisted God in an earlier season of revival seem now to be almost wholly passed over and left alone. You have no assurance that God will come inviting you next year, next month, or the next hour. A, there is what we have seen here of God in his pleading, and we come to be a pleading that necessitates man's action, a pleading that highlights God's sovereignty, and a pleading that necessitates man's action. Seek the Lord, call upon him, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. So what are the things that you are to do? You are to seek Jehovah. You are to take steps toward him. And this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Because so many times we think of a sinner. How is a sinner described? One who turned away from God. And in repentance, we are to turn towards God. We are to seek him. We are to take steps toward him. You are to call on on Jehovah. You are to have a sense of need. I need God's help. God, please don't pass over me. Make your gospel deal with me. I'm ready. The calling also signifies the worship of God with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a description of the church. Thirdly, what are we to do? You are to forsake your wicked lifestyle and your unrighteous thoughts. Let the wicked forsake his way, his external way, his lifestyle, what is plain and obvious to others. But you have to go further than that. You don't just clean up the external acts, but you concern yourself with your internal thoughts. You forsake the way and you forsake those natural thoughts of the heart. Now, you get no salvation. You get salvation with no money and with no price. But you don't get it without making hard decisions. Turning away from a life of sin and saying, I'm going to live in a different way. But it's possible. The Spirit of God works. Jonathan Edwards, living in that time of revival, recalled how a little girl named Phoebe died as a child. But 
She was converted in April of 1735 at the age of four, and she would say to her parents longingly, how long till the Sabbath? And the parents quizzed her. Is this because you want to see your friends at church and the people? No, because I want to hear Mr. Edwards preach. And then died before she reached maturity. Man's action, further you are to return to Yahweh and our God. Let the wicked, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and now let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see this activity? Seek him, call on him, forsake your wicked lifestyle and your ungodly thoughts, return to Yahweh our God. Then thirdly, see, a pleading that assures of God's favor and forgiveness. Again, I bless God that he's not a take it or leave it God. Here's salvation, you want it, take it. If you don't, leave it. It doesn't bother me, I don't care. No, God is pleading. I want you to know that if you'll forsake your way, if you will come and you'll ask God to forgive you, he will have mercy on him for he will abundantly pardon. There's a pile of your sin. Well, there's a bigger pile of God's grace. He's a just judge. He's angry with the wicked every day, but he is a God who will have mercy, and he is a God who will abundantly pardon. So is the street salesman comes out and is offering salvation without money and without price. And you think it's too good to be true? Well, what if I come to God? What if I come into the gospel feast? What assurance is there that God will receive me? He will have mercy on him. He will abundantly pardon. Are you afraid of God because of your sin? I understand that. Actually, a little glad to hear that you have a certain fear of God. A guilty and accusing conscience is deep trouble, but here's the answer. He will have mercy on you. He will abundantly pardon. Pile up your sins right here, and we'll pile up God's grace right here. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He makes his soul an offering for sin, but he shall see his seed. Jesus is coming back to life, and there are many seeds. There are many Christians that rise up from his death. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and that is why God can have mercy. And that is why God can abundantly pardon. Are you not a believer yet in the Lord Jesus Christ? Please go to him. Please go to him knowing you don't have money. You don't have anything to deal with God. 
All that you can do is come. All that you can do is come and buy without money. Receive it as a gift. All you can do is come and eat and come and drink the water and drink the milk and drink the wine that God is providing. And when you start halfway to the banquet hall and you're stopping short, remember, he will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. And there's your prayer. Lord God, you have said, Let's go to him in prayer. Father, you have indeed said, I will have compassion on him. I will abundantly pardon. Father, we pray that because of this graphic picture in Isaiah 55, we ask that you would never let us to forget the gospel deal. And some would perhaps be offended that I would term it a gospel deal. And yet here we find you, God, as the, the street vendor, the street salesman, crying aloud and making very plain the terms of your deal. We are to come without money, without price, knowing that we do not deserve it, knowing that we are not perfect people, knowing that we're not meritorious people because we are those who are wicked and need to forsake our lifestyle and we need to forsake our thoughts. Yet you'll have compassion and you will abundantly pardon. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives and bring some to saving faith who are under the sound of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.